Well, we made it to Friday, and that is worth so- something is- that is worth celebrating. So kick back and reward yourself with a cupcake. I think we've all earned it. I'm Zeki Hamid, by the way. I'm filling in for Bill Radke, who I hope is kicking back and enjoying a cupcake or two today. And this is Week in Review. This is the show where we try to make sense of the news. But I'm not going to do this alone. I'm joined today by three awesome journalists. We have GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis, independent journalist and host of the Undivided podcast Brandy Cruz, and the Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone. Welcome to the show, everybody. How's your Friday going? Well, good. Now I want a cupcake, though. (laughs) That's really great to be here. Good, good. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, By the way, we're not just on the radio. We are on YouTube. We're on Facebook as well. So you can tune in if uh, you've always wondered what people on the radio uh, look like and what they're wearing. Uh, uh, For me, I'm wearing my Sounders jersey. My beloved Seattle Sounders have to give them a shout out every single time I'm on air. So go Sounders. All right. Let's start with with the news here. We're going to start with COVID. This is a topic that we just can't quit because, well, it just keeps happening. So This week, the Washington State Board of Health voted unanimously against adding the COVID-19 vaccine to the list of required immunizations for kids in schools and child care settings in the state. The board was not debating whether the vaccines are safe, but rather uh, it should be rather if it should be required in order for kids to attend schools. So, Patrick, let me start with you. What was the board's reasoning behind this decision? Well, actually, I think one of the more interesting uh, aspects of this ruling was that there's some deference given to the objections to to masks and mandates out there. And uh, that really wasn't the case from state level government in the first and maybe even second waves of this. But uh, what we're seeing is concern, and it's shared by Governor Inslee in his public statements, that uh, further mandates, requirements could lead to families taking students out of schools. Now, we all know that there are also families that might take children out of schools in the absence of these things. But, uh, you know, the board is giving some consideration to that and and they're worried about it. And I think that, uh, you know, that that's important. And it's also important to note that different parts of the country are in different phases of this moment. Uh, For instance, we're seeing mask mandates are back in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Howard University in Washington, D.C. returned to virtual learning just yesterday, and the trend appears to be moving backwards in terms of COVID restrictions on everyday life in many places. Um, Will restrictions be back in Washington and maybe even in the schools? Uh, If the national trends continue, I believe that that's going to certainly be a part of the conversation. Uh, As far as requiring vaccinations in public school children, that's going to be a very hard political sell in certain pockets of the state. Um, and and there, there are some parts that have been more resistant to restrictions of any form. And like we saw with the undulations of the virus and public policy responses to it up to now, the places that predominantly took precautions had lower rates of infection. Uh, but it's a hot potato politically, especially in a year with many congressional races. Yeah. Brandy, what do you think? Do you think that the, uh, the state board made a good decision here? Well, I'm not going to um, opine on the decision that they made. I do agree with Patrick that it's very interesting that two years in, 
this is one of the first times I can uh, uh, remember at the state level where there was a real consideration for um, whether something they were doing was politically palatable. You know, they've told us this whole time they're following the data, they're following the science, but it appears that they're also now apparently following public opinion. And in fact, I was just reading before I came on um, the state's uh, epidemiologist did an interview with TVW and was asked about a possible return to mask mandates because of what's happening in Philadelphia, for instance. Uh, and the state epidemiologist said it wasn't uh, in the state's best interest right now to return to a mask mandate. I just want to read uh, the quote from him because I think it's very telling. He said, I think what's pretty clear is the public is pretty tired of mandates. And so I think we really need to use that power judiciously. Well, there's big segments of the public that were always tired of the mandates and were very vocal from the very early stages of the pandemic. But now you're seeing, and maybe it is because it's an election year, like Patrick said, now you're seeing them take public opinion and perception um, as part of their decision making. And I find that very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're saying a little bit more political than actually following the science here. Well, I mean, I, I think that there's been a lot of stages throughout the pandemic where they have yeah. not been following the science in terms of what makes sense and what doesn't and their consistency across the board. But they're making it very clear right now and openly admitting that public uh, input and perception and backlash is part of the decision making mm -hmm. at this stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mike, what do you think about this? I think it's been a pretty interesting case. I mean, I won't uh, reiterate what, uh, what both the, the prior two uh, folks have said, because I agree with that. It's interesting that they're taking a political uh, political calculus in this decision. I think the other things that's interesting here, though, is is the role of the teachers union in, in all of what we've been dealing with so far in the schools. I mean, this teachers union was aggressively for mask mandates. And obviously, I think there is some push as well for a vaccine mandate. I think it's interesting that this is going to end up as a, I think that this is going to end up as a ongoing um, conflict with the teachers union, which is trying to protect its own members and its own members' health, as opposed to the parents uh, who are also concerned about either mandates or also concerned about their own kids and the possibility of the spread of COVID-19. Uh, this uh, tension, uh, I would say, is, is far from over. Yeah. So I'm wondering about, you know, what, what is the difference between mandating COVID-19 vaccines for adults like the state did with state workers, some private companies did, and then schools, uh, you know, and uh, children? Just well, it's undeniable that the science has shown, this has been acknowledged, that kids are less likely to have serious illness or death um, than, than certain adults. And so I think that they have to factor that in. And then they have the added complication of kids not being able to make decisions for themselves in some instances. So if you have a child whose parents say, no, you're not getting the vaccine, and then that impacts that child's education. So it's almost like you have to consider that as well. Okay, how do we balance the need, the necessity for kids to get a vaccine um, versus the necessity for kids to be in school and get an education and not have, you know, the parents' decision around vaccines um, impact that child. Yeah. I think they're also taking a cue from the voluntary participation in vaccines. And if you look at the 5 to 11 age group, it's about a third of eligible children that have been vaccinated. So uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of urgency on the part of parents in their private decision making. And that could also be a factor. Yeah, absolutely.
Well, there's more COVID news that's been happening as well because um, the Biden administration announced Wednesday that it's going to extend the nationwide mask requirement on airplanes and public transit for another 15 days as it monitors the uptick in COVID-19 cases. It was supposed to expire on April 18th, but now it's extended until May 3rd. You know, when I, when I think about this, uh, this mask mandate uh, for transportation, I really think about the people who have to enforce it. You know, what, what, so what, what do we know about how these folks are thinking about it? We're talking flight attendants, bus drivers, train conductors. Anyone can take that one. I mean, it's unfortunate, I think, through the whole pandemic that they've had to be on the front lines of enforcing it. We know, especially for flight attendants, you're locked in this cabin 30,000 feet in the air, and we've seen so many unfortunate conflicts. And um, it's hard to know what to do about that. But as far as the extension of 15 days at this point, that seems like such a minuscule amount of time. And frankly, I, I had always assumed that the airline thing was going to kind of be indefinite. And so I don't know if they're going to plan to end it. But yeah, I mean, these flight attendants who've already been dealing with it um, and the the ramifications of it, I don't know if 15 more days is such a big deal for mm-hmm. them. But mm-hmm. would it make you uh, any more or less likely to travel? Does that factor no. into a decision at all? <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Mike or Patrick, would that, would that make you uh, any less likely or more likely to hop on a plane? I guess it depends on where you're going. If I was going to go visit my mother in Colorado next week when she's having knee replacement and, you know, is susceptible to infection and things. Yeah, it does make a difference. Okay. Mike? It doesn't have uh, a mask mandate has zero effect on my, I mean, my desire or need to travel is is going to uh, supersede any worries about wearing a mask. I think the other thing that sometimes isn't, isn't talked about is the, the, the flight attendants union uh, with say Alaska airlines, let's go with that. The, there's a ongoing discussions about, you know, there was discussions early on in the pandemic about requiring vaccinations before you get on a flight. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, it was, it was removed and put down to a mask mandate, but there's not e- agreement among flight attendants, for example, and pilots about whether or not the mask mandate should continue. I think there's quite a few who would like to see it continue. And if you ever flew I don't know if you flew in, in either Japan or in China any time in the last 10 years, uh, you saw masks frequently on flights because people were then worried about catching any number of any number of things. I, my guess is that the mask mandate, you're going to see a lot of people, whether it's a mandate or not, you're going to see a lot of people probably continuing to wear masks. And my guess is that you're going to see uh, flight attendants and crew as well continuing to wear masks well after a mandate uh, is over. You know, I saw this poll. It was really interesting by the Kaiser Family Foundation that uh, this, I don't I don't think this is really surprising, but uh, it found that Americans are evenly divided over keeping the mask rule for transportation. The poll found that 51 percent wanted the mandate to expire. Forty eight percent said they wanted to remain in place, which is pretty much uh, a tie. Democrats were uh, uh, overwhelmingly supportive of the rule, while Republicans uh, were not. But, yeah, we uh, we are divided on every single thing. Um, including that. And I just found this, actually, this amazing quote by James Madison. I'm going to go all the way back to James Madison. Where he uh, There was an article I was reading saying that we are living his nightmare right now. Uh, he notes that uh, people are so prone to factionalism that the quote is, where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. I'm not saying this is frivolous, but I just... Um, We'll give, give a little history here. 
Okay, so let's move on to the final thing I want to talk about with COVID. Uh, and uh, and Patrick, you had talked about this a little bit early on. Philadelphia reinstated the mask mandate, um, and from other places are doing it. So, really, I want to know where are we in regards to COVID? You know, are we are we close behind with with more mandates coming? You know, I, I think that it really depends on how things spread here. And there are a lot of different things that affect this. Uh, Washington, and especially in the Seattle area, is a highly vaccinated area. And that's going to make a difference with some of these things, I think. But if we look at where the true status of COVID is at this moment, the snapshot is fairly favorable. Um, as the news report from your station had just before we came on, there has been a slight uptick in cases over the past two weeks. But there has been an extreme and steep drop in hospitalizations, in deaths, in cases since the February 1st spike of Omicron. So, you know, uh, it is nice to not be at the tip of the spear on, on, on this stuff and having to feel our way through it the way we were at the very beginning. And I think this is an opportunity for the state to take its cues from other places and see if if these uh you know, mandates were premature or whether uh, they do make a large difference. You know, it's nice to have the luxury of time and other examples, but you also run the risk of, uh, you know, following a dance card. And I think that we saw a lot of this in the political decisions that were made early in the pandemic, that uh, every twitch from Washington resulted in a cascade of reactions from California, Colorado, neighboring states. So, uh, we will be taking cues, and I think it's very important to watch what's happening in these other places. They will be harbingers for what we can expect here. Hey, well, anything else on, on COVID before we let that go? No, I don't think so. I do think it's interesting. I mentioned the TVW um, interview that the state epidemiologist did, and he mentioned the issue about case counts versus hospitalizations and deaths. He said, we really need to measure this. Um, on its effects on hospitalizations and deaths, not on how much how many cases we've seen. And that was an argument that anti-mandate people have been making for the past year is, you know, to get off this obsession of case counts and to focus more on hospitalizations and deaths. And that's what they seem to be doing now, which is prudent. All right. Well, let's leave uh, COVID here and we're going to take a little bit of break and uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Week in Review on KUW. I'm Zeki Hamid. I'm still rocking you like a hurricane. And I am in for Bill Radke. And I'm here with GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis, independent journalist and host of the Undivided podcast Brandy Cruz, and Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone. So we're going to talk about um, this report that came out recently. The Seattle Times reported this week that the use of force by Seattle police officers reached an all-time low last year. And that's after it rose sharply in 2020 during the summer of protests sparked by the murder of George Floyd. However, the data we have uh, continue to show evidence of racial inequities when, uh, when, when officers resort to force, whether that's physical force or with tasers or guns. According to a report released by the Federal Monitor overseeing court-ordered police reforms, black and Native American folks continue to be disproportionately re represented when force is used if you compare the numbers with the census data. It also says that Asian and black people make up unusually large numbers uh, of victims of police shootings. So I want to start with you, Brandy. Uh, was this surprising to you? 
Of course you want to start with me. I already <laughs> lit up Twitter about this, uh, but I told you in our pre-interview uh, e- or our pre-show uh, emails that I'm ready to defend my position on this. And it's uh, no offense to Patrick's uh, friends over at the Times. I think there's a lot of issues with this article and with the data in particular, but I'll, I'll say a few, I guess, things that I hope we can agree are truths. Nobody wants there to be disparate outcomes for people on the basis of their skin color. I mean, nobody wants that. And and I also am open to any um, any finding on, on why there are disparate incomes based on facts, but not based on feelings. So a couple things about this article. It is incredibly disturbing that 30% of the data is missing. So when you look at use of force instances by the Seattle Police Department, because of the consent decree, they are supposed to track the race of the the person who they used force against. And 30% of the time, the officers did not uh, input that information. And I am concerned by that. Um, And there needs to be some accountability for that. But also, I think it's hard to jump to too many conclusions when you're missing a third of the data. I think that's a big uh, data point to be missing. But also, what I'd point out is the article finds, and it it, it comes to the conclusion that there are... um, Uh, there's a disproportionate amount of force being used on um, black people and Native Americans as opposed to white people, but it is at an all-time low. And the argument I've made against this article is it leaves out what I believe is an incredibly important statistic to truly understand this information. And that is if there is a disproportionate amount of crime being committed by black people and Native Americans uh, as a percentage of their population. And nowhere in the article does it reference that. I know people don't like to have those conversations, But one of the things I notice in the media's reporting on issues like this is they tend to default to what's the easiest explanation. And in this case, they're basically insinuating that it's racist cops. But I would argue that if you look at the data, you're going to find that there's a disproportionate amount of crime committed by communities of color and that we're ignoring the, the, the underlying reasons for that. I do believe the underlying reason is racism, but I believe it's the racism that began with slavery and that you had generations of Black Americans who were not a, uh, able to build wealth because of slavery and segregation. Uh, and so that led to higher rates of poverty, which led to higher rates of crime. And I think that that's what needs to be addressed, not chalking everything up to racist cops. Well, yeah, I didn't. I, that's not the the impression I got reading the article that it was about racist cops. I, it, it, I thought it was heavily talking about data. But let's see uh, either from Patrick or Lewis if you have uh, another point of view that we can take. Well, at its core, the, the disparity itself is a failure. And I think that we need to view police more commonly as a function of government, you know, and uh, if our school board was had such clear cut evidence of, you know, unequal treatment, I think that there would be a lot of people up in arms about that and they would call it racism. Uh, but the missing data is important for a number of reasons, too. First, the department was fully aware of its reporting requirements and the data it was expected to collect and failing to document race and use of force cases at such a high rate could be attributable to a number of factors. That's one of the things that I wish the report had fleshed out a little more fully as well, such as could it be officer error, inexperience, miscommunication, simply forgetting. Uh, But when you're under an order that explicitly places an emphasis on cataloging this data it's hard not to view it as simply evasive behavior. Uh, This brushes up against some ongoing reporting that I'm doing uh, about other departments here in Western Washington. And large 
large police departments in this part of the state seem to have a habit of deep sixing the data that might reflect poorly on its conduct related to equitable policing. And if that's a coincidence, it's a suspiciously persistent one and one that's frankly unacceptable from any government agency. Yeah. And let me say, I think the headline of this article is the missing data. Um, Mm -hmm. The Seattle Police Department and its officers should know better when they're required to do something around the issue of race, especially in this climate, to not be categorizing it one third of the time is incredibly serious. My argument is not about the data that was used in the article. It's about the data that wasn't used. And you gave the example of people in schools. Well, if you had a school where there were 10 black kids who acted out and two white kids who acted out and the school went out and, and disciplined all of them, That would be a disproportionate outcome based on, let's say, the number of black students at that school. But does it mean that it's inherently racist? And in the criminal justice system, I give the example of if you have 10 people rob a bank and five of them are black and five of them are white, police aren't going to go out and say, well, I can only arrest one of the black bank robbers, but all of the white bank robbers because or else it would be a disproportionate outcome. So my argument is if you include the data about whether there is a disproportionate amount of crime being committed by communities of color, we can have a true sense of the scope of the problem. And then we can look at the actual ways to address it. And I would argue that's helping to build wealth in communities of color, making sure kids get a good education, get into college, helping business owners of color, et cetera. I think we we need to have more complex conversations than we're having. Yeah. And and we have do have a lot of historical data that shows the disproportionate use of force going back years and years and years. And I think it's interesting, Brandy, you'd kind of, and maybe uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the feeling I get is that you are kind of giving the benefit of the doubt to to the police. And I'm wondering if they have earned that benefit of the doubt based on the disproportionate use of force that they have done, you know, for, for a long time. And and we do have a, a consent decree as well. I mean, that's the whole point behind this. So I'm just wondering if they've earned that, that benefit of the doubt. I'm giving the benefit of the doubt to facts rather than feelings. I think that when the media reports on issues of race, it has a tendency to report on issues and come to conclusions based on their feelings. All I want to see on issues of race, given how divisive it is, given the climate, is fully vetted, fully reported stories that give a complete picture. And my argument is that a key piece of data is missing. Now, that data could show that, no, as a matter of fact, police are using force at levels that are completely disproportionate compared to the uh, who's committing crimes and what race they are. But I would argue that that missing piece of data is a dereliction of journalistic responsibility. Um, I'm doing some work to try to fill in that missing piece of data. But like I said, I'm open to any conclusion. And the conclusion could very well be that, yeah, this is a startling um, a comparison to the types of crimes being committed and by whom, a startling disproportionate use of force. I just want to see the data on it. And as far as you know, people always accuse me of having um, magnanimous coverage of the police. Um, I treat the police as I treat any government official. And I was speaking to a group of retired officers today, and I started out by saying there is no person in power with more who, who demands more accountability than police officers. They have a badge and a gun, and they can take people's life. And we always have to scrutinize them. But I think that the press has done it in a very lazy way. Not everyone. But I think a lot of people have done it in a way that's based on feelings and not actual statistical data. And I'd like to see that change. I think there have, there have been some looks from other agencies around here that go deeper into this. And some of them are Renton, 
we saw it and uh you know i'm trying to remember where else but there were a number of city councils tacoma didn't do it i could tell you that that have analyzed their use of force and they show the same thing and when you look at national studies by respected authors like rajiv sethi you know uh, at columbia university uh they find that the farther west you get, the more this disparity grows and that it's twice as bad in Washington state when they compared 18,000 police departments than it is in places you would suspect it to be bad like Mississippi. And when you use the example of a school, yes, they, there might be 10 black students disciplined where two white students were, but where is the school resource officer or the teachers I trained? Is it on that black officer's locker or the black student's locker or the white student's locker? And so, you know, this and is- And do we road. know? That's Do the we question. Know? Well, when I when I see things like if I review my reporting on the case of Manuel Ellis, where you know three officers in Tacoma are now facing criminal charges for his death, and I look back over his history, the reasons he was pulled over a dozen times in his life were a cracked windshield, you know, a, a, a tail light that's out, a mismatched fender where the paint doesn't match, or being out late at night with three other black men, and these were times when charges sometimes resulted and sometimes didn't. But I think that the frequency that people in communities of color encounter police is an aspect that also needs to be studied in tandem with this. Yeah, let me give you, and you mentioned, I, I, this is a good conversation you have, we're having, you mentioned some national uh, stories that also reflected a disparity in policing. And again, I'm not saying that that reality isn't there. I'm saying that you have to also include whether there is a disproportionate, um, you know, uh, disproportionality when it comes to who's committing crimes. I'll give you an example of a story that I actually thought was very effective in proving the thesis. There was a story from the Washington Post that looked at stops and searches of police uh, of that police made on vehicles. And they found that they were searching uh, black people's vehicles at a much higher rate, a disproportionate rate than white people's vehicles. But they found stuff in the white people's vehicles far more often, guns, drugs. And so you, that's an example of a very well-reported story that was a clear indicator that there was bias on the part of police when it came to who, whose vehicles they searched because they were searching far more black people's vehicles, but they'd find uh, crimes far more often in white people's vehicles. So that to me is undeniable, an instance of in this particular place, what they were finding. What I would like to see in this reporting is an undeniable uh, verification that this is bias on the part of the police. And I believe in order to come to that conclusion, you have to have a breakdown of crimes by race and how frequently they're being committed as a percentage of a population. So That's all I'm I want to get Mike into uh, into this conversation uh, before we move on to something else about, uh, about uh, some homeless camps here, which is a little bit related. But uh, Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I thought uh, Patrick's point was was well taken about where are you gathering the data, uh, and and where is where are you seeking out the data? Because you can certainly game the the system uh, in a particular way if you're only gathering data from one particular area. So, to the point of disproportionate crime crimes being committed by certain communities, well, if those are the communities where you're primarily looking for the crime, that's where you're going to find the data. Uh, and I think that the that the the Washington Post article I'm familiar with that story too, Randy. The it, it exactly underscores that point. I'd also say though that I do wish, in some ways, that the uh, the police monitor had pushed back the entire report to the police department and then did a series of interviews with the officers who didn't actually fill out the data. 
I think that that is at the very worst, we get the situation <laughs> that we see in this discussion here that people are saying, well, other reports have indicated that there certainly might be a problem or there is a 30 percent of one third of the data is missing. And this leaves it open for wide interpretation and speculation as to what would be in that data. And it seems to me that that the police monitors first job is to sit down. I mean, they know who the police are who didn't fill out this data. They have all of the reports. I would like to see that data gathered and I'd like to at least find out why. And if it is just sort of innocence, uh, lack of accounting or lack of you know, correct bookkeeping when it comes to police reports, that's one thing. But it does, whenever I see missing data and whenever I deal with, uh, with governments and missing data, let's just use text messages as a, as a corollary, um, I get concerned. I get concerned that that is actual cover up and that is not just uh, inadvertent. And I think that that data, getting that data together would be uh, exceptionally important it, as, as far as it relates to this report. Well, I, I do agree with you that it's almost right. like a misrepresentation to put it out when it's so incomplete. The good thing is that they can go back to body cameras and see the race of suspects. It's going to take them a lot of work. But I think in this instance, they need mm -hmm. to do it to, to get a complete picture. So and I'm the, the point ahead. of this whole exercise is to build trust, right? <laughs> Fail. Exactly. F minus for trust yeah, on, exactly. on this report. So I think we've exactly. we've we've kind of created a conversation here that is surely to continue on Brandy's Twitter account. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah. we could check that out. But this is a really good way to 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 to, uh, to, to get into this a lot more discussion and a lot uh, that needs to be done about this for sure. Uh, here's another thing that caught my eye this week. Uh, so Seattle City Council Member Andrew Lewis asked police for some data on shots fired. In the city, and uh, what uh, Andrew Lewis found is that more than eight, or the, what the report said, is that more than 18% of all shots fired incidents in Seattle last year were associated with homelessness, according to these uh, police records. These shootings were up 122% in 2021 versus 2020, and Lewis was uh, pretty surprised with these numbers. Uh, his quote is, I'm not making any argument from this data as to the causation of the shootings. Encampments, though, are massive magnets for crime on that data is clear. That's uh, Andrew Lewis's quote. So um, I guess, first of all, I want to ask, you know, I was struck by that that language that he used says massive magnets for crime. How true is that? What do we know? Well, I mean, we I know think, the data. Oh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, no, I, I think that there is, I mean, homeless encampments uh, are not exclusively massive magnets for crime. Are there some that are? There's zero question. If you spend a lot of time on a bicycle, uh, as I do, and you ride through certain areas, let's use the waterfront to West Seattle connector, uh, you see piles and piles of bicycles uh, in that area and a lot of other stuff that looks like it was acquired uh, uh, creatively. And I am not convinced that there isn't uh, serious nests of crime associated with, with some of the encampments and obviously others. Uh, there probably there probably isn't. But I don't know that uh, that he is wrong on that point. I, I do think that there is there is not a lot to be. I'm not sure what there is to be gained by his report. Uh, because I don't think that's anything that anyone is was unclear about prior. Uh, so, I mean, maybe it speaks to the the issues that we're probably going to get into regarding what sort of camps mm -hmm. do seem to be effective and which sort of ones, uh, the uncontrolled, which ones do not. Yeah. Brandy, I know you have some thoughts on that. Yeah. If you were watching the video, I was having a good laugh at Andrew Lewis, just because 
to me, I, I don't know how you can be the councilman for downtown for three years and suddenly have this epiphany that there's a correlation between a homeless crisis and a crime crisis. To me, it's painfully obvious. I mean, look, going back years, going back well before Andrew Lewis ran for city council in 2019. And so I kind of had a good laugh at that article because I'm just thinking like, is he now just realizing that this is an issue? And we don't have to wonder whether he's right. He you know, ask for the data that that proves that there is a clear correlation. You know, when you look at all the shootings that happened 2021, 2020 in the city, um, one of the things that was noted in the Seattle Times article is that when you look at reasons for shooting, gang violence, um, shootings committed in, in the commission of a felony like a robbery, um, domestic violence, shootings that had a correlation to homelessness was the highest percentage, even higher than gang violence. And so that to me is very telling, but also remember, I think we need to get off this train of being tiptoeing around this issue because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. But, you know, whenever you you point this correlation out, people are like, oh, you're anti-homeless, you're, you know, anti-poor people. But remember, homeless individuals are far more likely to be the victim of violent crime than the general population. So when you ignore the correlation between the homeless crisis and the crime crisis, you're also diminishing the homeless individuals on our streets who are the victims of crime at a disproportionate rate. And that's why when you look at policies that stop the sweeps of dangerous encampments, you're doing that at the expense of homeless individuals who are vulnerable in those settings and who are more likely to be the victims of violent crime. Uh, Patrick, let's uh, get to you here. I'm, I'm wondering if that changes the city's, uh, the committee and homelessness approach to the issue. I mean, does this data give us any more, does it give any more weight to uh, solutions that people have proposed? Tiny homes, tent cities, motel rooms, um, you know, Mike, because you had alluded to that earlier, what types of camps are we talking about here? Well, long before Councilman Lewis, you know, noted these dangers, I think it's been obvious that there are inherent dangers of living on the streets that are always going to outpace the threats of people who are stably housed face. And uh, how to accomplish getting more people into stable housing seems like a strong solution, but that's proven to be vexing and not always an affordable prospect. So uh, while the proposed answers have at times been controversial, it's probably a great first step to acknowledge that violence is one of the public health concerns that unhoused people are you know, at greater risk of being touched by than others. Uh, it's a starting point. And the answer is a much longer march because there's no flip that you're going to switch to instantly clear the streets of bleak conditions and that many people in Seattle are living in. And yes, it may be true that there have not been shootings at these tiny house locations. And so what is that? It's stable housing, right? And that's what they're looking for. But what happens the first time there is? Do you throw it out with the bathwater? I think that you just stay on the long march here. And, and it's not a solution that figures itself out overnight. But the first step is acknowledging uh, the threats posed to the homeless population uh, are greater than the rest of us face. And I, I mean, I actually feel like, you know, there, there's been a lot of fun made of the fact that this was an acknowledgement from Councilman Lewis, but you got to say something out loud first before you can fix it. Yeah. And I, and I, I agree, but you also have to be, you have to acknowledge the problem in its entirety before you can fix it. As you pointed out, as I pointed out, you're also talking about homeless people being victimized, but we cannot forget. And we have to say out loud, 
that homeless people have victimized individuals downtown. We've had some really horrific cases because you also have a mental health crisis on our street that goes along with homelessness and a drug crisis. And those are all things that need to be addressed. And it's really, really hard to find and keep stable housing uh, if you're in the midst of a mental health crisis or a drug crisis. So as usual, it's a very, very complex problem that we just need to um, acknowledge. I think the reason why I kind of laugh at Andrew Lewis with this is, you know, this is someone who campaigned in 2019 on the promise to hire more officers. Six months later, he pledged to defund SPD by 50%. Three months after that, he changed course again. And now you have him for two and a half years spending time resisting every single effort to clear problem homeless encampments. And now, you know, leading up to an election year, he's now acknowledging something that has been very, very obvious. And so it's just a little more flip-flopping than even the, the normal politicians. Mike, I'll give you the last word on this. You know, I think that it's pretty obvious. If anybody wants to try a test to do this, if you drive on 15th Street, you're headed toward Ballard, you take the Magnolia Bridge exit, you initially look to your left, and you'll see a, uh, an, a, a freelance a homeless encampment behind a series of buildings. Twice I've driven by there and reported uh, motorhomes on fire, uh, serious fire. Uh, in both cases, you know, it involves like multiple alarm response. You go around the corner and you start heading into Magnolia. You look down to your right side and you see a tiny home village. That has been a model of not only few problems, it's clean, it's safe. And, and, and to echo Brandy's point, the people who live there are safe. And they are frequently, most frequently, the victims uh, of the increased crime rate. You know, if you associate that with homelessness camps, and I think sometimes it's overly conflated, but certainly it's hard to deny the statistics on, on people who are unhoused and their susceptibility to crime and violent crime. And if you look down at those two places, and they are separated by 800 feet, you'll see a radical difference in how people are being treated and, and how safe they are in their likelihood of moving on from their current situation. Well, thank you uh, all for, for tackling this subject in, in, in this manner. I, I hope we can all continue to give dignity to everybody that lives here, whether they are housed or, or, or not housed. But um, we have a lot more to get to, including some stuff about Alaska Airlines, but we'll be right back after this break. All right. Welcome back to Week in Review. I'm Zeki Hamid. I'm in for Bill Radke, and I'm here with GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis, independent journalist and host of the Undivided podcast Brandy Cruz, and Seattle Times senior investigator reporter Patrick Malone. All right. We're going to talk some uh, a little bit here about Alaska Airlines. They have not been having a good time lately. A whole lot of flights have been canceled since the beginning of April. Uh, ultimately, it cut its spring schedule by 2%. Uh, a shortage of pilots was blamed for these cancellations. The airline says that they've resolved uh, the scheduling problems, but they're still in need of a lot more pilots. The immediate problem seems to have passed now, but the shortage pilots, as I said, uh, is an issue for the industry as a whole. But it has especially been acute for Alaska. Um, what do we know about that? What, what's up with Alaska? I don't think that it's a, it, this is going to be a problem that's isolated with, uh, with Alaska Airlines. If you talk to anyone in the airline industry or the industry experts, uh, John Ostrauer and the Air Current, which is a local publication, they will tell you that every airline is facing the same sort of shortage. And right now they're, they're papering it over, but it's going to get worse. And here's two reasons why it's going to get worse. One, if you read the Aviation Pros website, they actually 
track flight school enrollments of all things. And they're down precipitously as a result of COVID. So we're not, we don't have enough people in the pipeline to become pilots. The secondary problem, and this is an odd one, is the use of drones in the military. That has actually, over the long haul, mm -hmm. is reducing the number of military pilots. And military pilots used to be the primary pipeline for commercial wow. pilots. Now we're finding that the two great sources, flight school enrollment and the military, are not going to be producing as many pilots, at least over the short term, as they had been. So any shortages that Alaska Airlines has now, you can expect that Alaska Airlines is going to have coming, coming up, but that's going to probably spread to other airlines as well, because then they're going to start poaching pilots from each other. That was fascinating. I never thought of the drone right. issue in the military and the impact that would have on commercial airlines. That's the most interesting thing I've heard today. I learned I too. I did not know that. <laughs> I didn't even think about it, but it makes so much sense. Learning so much on Week in Review. <laughs> very clearly, these these uh, pilots recognize that they're in a position of you know, bargaining leverage. And so there's Absolutely. labor strife that's driving a lot of this. And uh, those pilots who are out there are going to be highly coveted. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't see how Alaska is going to get to its planned expansion without a pool of pilots to get them there. They're talking about adding planes. They're talking about adding flights. Well, you're going to need to add pilots and that's going to be really difficult to do. And how's that going to then affect us as consumers once the, the labor uh, situation sorts itself out. And well, I and it's not just oh, ahead, it's not just going to be that. Alaska Airlines and a lot of people. This hasn't been, I think, widely reported in the area. I think Alaska Airlines is on a hiring binge for flight attendants too. They're hiring, mm -hmm. I think, a thousand flight attendants over the last four or five months. They're in schools. I've had friends who have, have hosted, you know, the graduation parties uh, in their restaurants for for flight attendants because they're they're pumping out flight attendants there's a shortage of those too and that's also going to be in every uh, every uh, airline it's not just mm -hmm. going to be alaska yeah. sorry and can Randy, i just no can i just say that i'm not trying to get alaska to sponsor my podcast or anything but i'd still <laughs> rather fly alaska than any other airline <laughs> even if they have cancellations now and then still far superior <laughs> so um yeah the 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 does COVID have anything to do with this? I mean, it must. COVID has to do with everything right now, with shortage of everything. So I'm wondering what what, what uh, role does it have there? It uh, it has a huge factor into that. I mean, COVID has a factor on staffing for any business, right? Mm -hmm. But with the with the flight school, if you look at the if you dig deeper into the into the uh, Aviation Pros website, they show the graphic of 2020 flight school attendance plummets. That line is straight down uh, through the next couple of years. And now it's starting to climb back up, but that's two years of pilot training that went uh, south as a result of COVID-19. That means that you're going to find, I mean, everyone wants to talk about supply chain. Well, pilots are, a, are in a supply chain too. And this, that means that you're going to see shortages uh, for a few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do wonder too, whether it'll even out a little bit. I mean, absent their expansion plans, th these last couple of months have really been the first time that I think things have been really open and people have been traveling more. It's spring break season. And so I'm kind of curious how things will look over the summer. 
Yeah, that will be good. As long as they don't mess with uh, a trip that I have coming up that I've postponed <laughs> for two years, I'm good. All right. Uh, we're going to move on from Alaska here because here's a question for you. Uh, what does it take to be considered a local to Seattle and the Pacific Northwest? There was a recent poll from Kemp- Pemco Insurance uh, asking about this recently. And I uh, have to admit, uh, I, I kind of have a beef with this whole, you know, who is a real Northwesterner question. Because to me, it's simple. If you call this place home, congratulations, you're a Northwesterner. Because I'm wondering, what is it about this place that we say welcome to people, um, but then we put the caveat that we expect you to adhere to the dominant culture first, and we will shame you to eternity if you wear a suit or carry an umbrella. But, you know, just for fun, I wanted to ask this uh, questions to folks from our community feedback club. And so I asked, what makes a real Northwesterner, and what are your favorite and not-so-favorite stereotypes? By the way, if anybody wants to sign up, it's a texting club, and they can just go to KUW.org slash feedback. So here's some of the answers uh, that came back. Most of them had to do with casual clothing, umbrellas, and uh, yeah, let's just call it the quest for privacy. I think it's a nicer term than Seattle <laughs> freeze. But uh, Chelsea from First Hill says, I'd just like to say I'm proudly part of the 38% who do profess to use umbrellas. I've lived in the area all my 40 years, and there's no need to suffer when it rains. Uh, Mary from Wallingford says, love the Seattle casual dress code. Jeans and a casual shirt gets you anywhere except canless. And Nathan from Bellingham says that what defines a Northwesterner is drive slowly in the left lane of I-5. And finally, Ken says, well, years ago, I joked that I was a Seattle stereotype because I had skis and snowshoes. I biked to work. I was a lib. I gave up umbrellas in the 80s. I ran. My formal dinner jacket is a raincoat, and I have three pairs of hiking boots, Merrells and Keens, a half dozen flannels on puffies and fleece. I always have a cup of coffee at arm's length. And yeah, I am a programmer. I don't hunt, fish, or sail, but I'm a really nice guy. Peace out. That's from Ken. So uh, what about you? What makes a real Northwesterner? I mean, I've been here for 12 years and I will say I annoy my friends because I am the antithesis of all those things. I always have a dress and heels on. So we'll go out for dinner and they always know to expect me to be way overdressed for Seattle. And I always am. And I I don't care if I'm overdressed and I always wear an umbrella. I got to protect the hair. So <laughs> I uh, definitely don't. If though, if that's what makes you a, a Northwesterner, I, I guess I'm not included. Now you've been here for 12 years. You passed my test, that's for sure. <laughs> Patrick, what do you think? Well, I'm a relative newcomer, too. I arrived in January 2020 from Washington, D.C., but I'm a native of Colorado and spent most of my life there. And we it's very similar in many ways, including the stereotypes. We're a bunch of Subaru driving wearers of casual outdoor attire as well. Um, it doesn't bother me if strangers don't talk to me at a bus stop. And here's a spoiler alert for native Seattleites. Most newcomers aren't craving that kind of contact with you anyway. So there, there's undoubtedly a certain clickishness you will encounter from some longtime residents. But I found an equal amount of really warm people that are fast becoming the type of friends that you hold on to for a lifetime. Uh, one thing that does shock me a little bit is how often longtime residents gripe about living here. Um, when I say I'm new to town and I genuinely love Seattle, the most common response I get is I can't wait to get out of here. And then I ask, uh, you know, how long have you lived here? And they say 40. 50 years. So I I think there's really an element of nostalgia more than anything else that's driving this about when Seattle was maybe smaller, cozier, a lot less expensive, didn't have to deal with Yankee and LA Rams fans like me. And, uh, you know, please let me know when I've been here long enough to earn a Seattleite badge. (laughs) 
Well, you know, that Rams thing goes against you. Uh, I'm with you on the Yankees, but um, and now I'm going to get a whole lot of hate mail for that. Mike, what do you think? Uh, nor- real Northwesterner, what makes it? So what makes a real local has always been kind of a funny argument as far as I'm concerned. So I'll just relate an anecdote. Uh, my buddy, uh, Chris Valencia, who's an electrician here in town, his family line uh, in Santa Fe goes back to the original Spanish settlers. So his family line goes back to the 1500s uh, in Santa Fe. Uh, he said the local Pueblo Indians still call he and his family newbies. So there you go. All right. All right. We have test Santa Fe, former Santa Fe resident. This this is a true phenomenon. <laughs> All right. We got just uh, exactly four minutes left. So we're going to have squeeze in one more little thing here uh, before we say goodbye, because I saw this thing on TikTok. I'm a big fan of TikTok. It's in, pretty entertaining. Um, yeah. But it's somebody who talks about something called Spokane-style pizza. So just gonna, let's listen to this clip. Spokane-style pizza is the most underrated regional pizza. You start off with a Pyrex because Spokane actually invented the casserole. Fry sauce, a local delicacy. Then you're going to put some canned salmon on top of there along with bell pepper and onion. Then you top it with mozzarella cheese and some wild forward strawberries from the Spokane Coeur d'Alene region. That gets baked Detroit-style with a crispy cheese crust. And then you bring it out and top it with more fry sauce. Let's dig in. Mmm. Get that good quality Eastern Washington salmon. You got that beautiful creamy fry sauce and that little hit of sweetness and acid from the strawberry. I see why the entire city of Spokane and the greater Coeur d'Alene region really loves this pizza. This is awesome. You guys should check it out. Well, it turns out that was completely false. There's no such <laughs> thing as Spokane pizza with salmon and strawberries. But uh, would you actually put that on a pizza? I don't know. I talked to Congresswoman Kathleen Morris Rogers, of course, the Republican um, who represents the area around Spokane. I was sitting down with her earlier this week and I brought this up with her, not as part of the interview, but I was like, is this real? And she'd never heard of it. And that's why I knew it was a fraud. But if you put pineapple on pizza, I guess strawberries isn't such a large departure. It's the casserole thing that is weird to me about that whole thing. (laughs) Any any uh, anything from uh, Mike or Patrick on pizza? Well, that's like pizza's version of a diss track, you know. It was, it's like taking a shot across the bow at Spokane and any place else that would welcome that abomination into its borders. How about you, Mike? When I was a that? when I was a kid backpacking uh, in Europe, I was in Copenhagen and desperate, desperately hungry, and went to an all-you-can-eat pizza place. And the pizza that they offered was uh, covered in tuna and corn. And I thought that's the worst pizza I've ever seen in my life. And I'd still maintain that until I saw the Spokane pizza. I think that is an abomination. All right. We have decided that the fake Spokane pizza is an abomination. All right. We got, uh, just about a minute and a half here. I, uh, I love this thing that Bill does every week. So I'm going to do it. What's making you smile this week. I'm going to really just start right here really quickly. The Seattle Sounders are obviously making me smile. They are now in the CONCACAF Champions League final. And if they win, they will become the first MLS team to ever win this tournament. So go Sounders. Brandy, how about you? What's making you smile? Uh, You know, that's a little embarrassing, but my boyfriend taught me how to ride a bike last week. I never learned to ride a bicycle as a child. And I almost cried when he taught me and I took to it pretty fast. And so I've been just biking all around. And after this, in fact, I think I'm going for a bike ride. So it's been making me smile. That's awesome. Way to go. Mike, how about you? I think what's making me I actually I'm switching mine on the on the fly. What's making me smile is that uh, Brandy's finally becoming a real Pacific Northwestern <laughs> learning how to ride a bicycle. Love it. That's right. Now the ponchos are coming up next and uh, all the rain <laughs> gear. Patrick, what's making you smile? 
Oh, it's undoubtedly my son's little league team. You know, it's great to see seven-year-olds falling in love with hanging out with a bunch of friends outside and being distracted by butterflies, running the wrong way after hitting the ball, and just all the other joyful things that come along with the little league experience. So go see Otters. That is awesome. Uh, my my kid just started a softball, and they called themselves the Special Snakes. I don't know why, but that's that's what it is. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Week in Review, everybody, and thank you to my awesome panelists here. Uh, they are GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis, independent journalist and host of the Undivided podcast Brandy Cruz, and Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone. Our show is produced by Kevin Canisted, social media and streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquita, and Tio Popescu. Bernardo Lett runs the board, and I'm Zeki Hamid. Thank you all for listening. Please be kind to each other and have a wonderful day. <laughs> <laughs>